0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. Welcome to Human Circus. Today, in keeping with the late October spirit, it's a medieval traveler who did indeed wander, who did not stay at home. He had no choice in that matter, and we'll get to that. But his travel is not the focus of the day. As this is the Halloween season, I thought, as I have in previous years, that I'd cover something appropriately spooky. This time, that takes us to the 14th century Icelandic Saga of Grettir the Strong, opening up a rich new vein of names and terms for me, despite my best efforts to mispronounce. Our saga was recorded in that 14th century and survived in four 15th century vellum manuscripts. But it was drawn from earlier sources, earlier sagas of Icelanders or oral sources, the 13th century Book of Settlements describing the Norse settlement of Iceland, and other works. From them, it portrayed many historical figures and events attested to elsewhere, and also, as you'll hear some of, a few presumably ahistorical. Supernatural ones, the stuff of folklore and legend. The saga was recorded in an Iceland ruled by the Norwegian king, but it was set in one which did not have a king or standing army. There was a well established legal system, however, one by which individuals might bring forward suits for damages and injuries to property. Possession, body, reputation, Fines might be decided on by a jury. Blood vengeance might be taken. Or, as will happen to our protagonist, outlawry, exile. Either for a set term or indefinitely. Stripped of all rights and status, a person receiving such a judgment might choose to eke out an existence in the inhospitable inland regions, away from society, and vulnerable to being slain without penalty. But more likely, they'd leave. Would go to Norway, for example. Or, if you were Eric the Red, to Greenland. Once their punishment had elapsed, if ever it would, they returned our protagonist, will be one of those subjected to such rulings. And not only once. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. A history podcast exploring the medieval period through the stories of its travelers, its friars, envoys, frauds, and merchants, and a history podcast with a Patreon, one where you can enjoy episodes ad-free and a day early, along with bonus mini ones, and also help keep this whole one-person vessel afloat in the process, all for as little as a dollar a month. This time, I want to especially thank. Mindy Bain, for doing so. Thank you very much. And now, to the story. We will end today's episode, spend the second half, with the violent hauntings of Torhalstadter by the undead Glaumer. We will begin where the saga begins. Our source Though it is called the Gretis Saga, the Saga of Grettir does not begin with its title character. It opens with his ancestry, reaching back to his great-grandfather, Onund Treefoot, the birthfoot having been lost in battle against King Harald, someone who sought to unify Norway, and here appears as something of a tyrannical figure. You may know him from Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It speaks of Onund in the strife that followed and spurred him on to sail for Iceland, a microcosm of the ninth century migration from Norway and elsewhere that saw 10 to 20,000 take up homesteads in their new land. It speaks of Onund's son, Torgrim Greyhead. And then Torgrim's son, Asmundur Greyhair, the family living in diminished circumstances at a place which translates to Cold Ridge. Onund having come late to find land after staying to settle his affairs in Norway. It speaks of Asmundur's son, our protagonist, Grettir Asmundursund, Alive in the years when the Christian conversion was only young, but still rendered him a figure out of time. A hero who did not fit. Grettier's life does not begin as a horror story. Or if it does, it is only in the most mundane sense possible. He is a difficult child. Antagonistic. Both in words and deeds. He clashes with his father, who is not fond of him. And when forced to work, he makes it not worth the effort to force him to do so. Maybe lazy, maybe defiant, maybe just arrogant, or easily angered. He kills the geese he is meant to care for, and then, when confronted, grins and jests about it in rhyme. He is given to such boyish tricks that may have been more charming in their original context, but now, certainly, Reed is verging on the unhinged, flaying the back of a horse, for example. Maybe there's more of his difficult relationship with his father in those deeds than it first seems. Maybe not. Of his other son, the father says he thinks he will make a good farmer. Of Grettir, that he will be a strong and ungovernable man. Grettir infuriates, not just in what he does, but also in what he says. He speaks in quips and rhymes, often ones with double meanings. He angers those around him and clearly can be cruel. But he's also oddly funny. When his father speaks to him of the horses, he responds that many lack wisdom, even those from whom you expect more. Seeming to his father to also speak of the horses, but more likely actually talking about his father. When his father pats a horse's back, and is just about to discover that the skin has been flayed away as it slides from the body, Gretier remarks that the expected happens, and also the unexpected. Gretier is in his mid-teens when he gets in an argument with a farm worker over ownership of a lost bag. It's unclear in the telling if it's really Gretier's or not. If he truly believes it to be his, or not. But either way, he kills the man with their own axe. The punishment? Three years as an outlaw. His father arranges for him to be taken on by a trading ship, but will send no weapon with him, correctly thinking he will do no good with it. Nothing given, replies Grettir. Nothing owed. His mother sends him off with a fine-looking sword, correctly thinking he will have need of it. Many wish him farewell, but few a safe return. On the trading ship, Grettir's behavior is, very much as you'd imagine, intolerable. He lies about doing nothing, mostly spending his time with the captain's wife while the rest of those aboard struggle with the rough seas. And if that wasn't enough, he constantly composes insulting rhymes about the rest of them. It's only with the intervention of the ship's owner that they do not put him overboard. But there's more to him that starts to emerge. A startling physical capability, demonstrated before departure, when he lifts an enormous boulder. a that will connect him to local rocky landmarks. And then, when he is actually convinced to work, mostly by reference to what that captain's wife will think of him, a near otherworldly endurance in bailing out the ship, that outlasts all others aboard. For the rest of the crossing, he is ever helpful, and the others ever thankful. It marks a bit of a turning point in his story and also an indication that this is not a static character. He's going to grow and at times to gain your sympathy. When they reach land, an island off the coast of Norway, the rest travel on, off the island, and out of the narrative. But Grettir does not. He stays there with Thorfinn the lord of the island, for a while, giving no sign of leaving, not really aggravating his host like he has others before, but not exactly endearing himself either. He stays long enough for a few important events to occur. In the first of these, he's visiting a man who he's befriended, a new development in itself. When he glances away into the night sky, and sees fire. And not just the usual fire, for, quote, if anything like that was seen in our country, he says, it would be said that it was flaming up from gold. And so it is in this case. Gold, indeed. But in a burial mound, belonging to Torfinn's father, Car the Old. Gretier's new friend wants nothing to do with it, but eventually, he allows himself to be talked into the Enterprise, and agrees to meet Gretir the following day with digging tools. That next day, Gretir goes to the mound, and he digs. By evening, he's reached the roof beams below the earth, and he's ripping them out his friend is again telling him to leave it. But he doesn't. He breaks through and leaves his friend at the surface, holding the rope, while he lowers himself down, into the chamber below, into the barrow. He sees little, at first, but he can make out the horse bones on the dirt, and can smell something foul. And then, exploring the space... He turns up gold and silver, and a chest. In the dark, he bumps into the back of a chair, and in it, the figure of a man. It's Car the Old, seated in his place of rest. Grettir actually seems unbothered by this, busying himself with gathering up the loot, and taking it all over to the rope. It is, after all, No surprise to find a body in a grave. It's only when that body's hand grabs him from behind and yanks him back that he pays attention. This is not just a body. It's a draugr, as such things were called. The animated dead that often guarded their burial mounds. Back and forth, the two of them wrestle. There, beneath the ground first one gaining the upper hand for a moment, and then the other, crashing about through the horse bones and back again, until finally the mound-dweller topples to the ground, and Grettir, seizing the opportunity, draws his sword and cuts off the dead man's head, placing it beside the body so it cannot rise again. His friend, having long since run away, Grettir pulls himself up out of the burial mound, and the treasures along with him. Twice more, Grettir will prove himself on Torfinn's island, earning a real friend and benefactor in his host, with feats of physical power and also trickery. He'll single-handedly fool and then defeat a boatload of marauding berserkers who come, when Torfinn and his men are away. And he'll fight and kill a cave bear by himself. But then he'll duel a man who has offended him. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to opt for violence. Could just, as his friend urges him, accept the settlement offered to appease him, as is standard and accepted in this society. But he does. He does kill the man, leading to a chain of events that are going to send him out of Norway and back to Iceland. No individual seems capable of standing against him, but even he cannot hold back the broader forces of society. This killing initially brings the Jarl and the deceased's brother both against him. Only the intervention of Torfin, and other sympathetic voices, manage to satisfy the Jarl, and the brother isn't satisfied at all. The brother ambushes Grettir in the street, wounding him with an axe, so Grettir kills him too, as well, with the aid of a companion, as five others. Now the Jarl is really enraged. Because even if you can claim defense, you can't just keep slaughtering people, not without repercussions. The Jarl expresses regret that Grettir didn't simply die in the attack himself, along with the concern that more men will now die as a result. And indeed, they do. There is, of course, a third brother and he and his friends catch Grettir alone, smashing in the door where he drinks and rushing at him. Grettir drops back into a corner, fending them off with his shield, killing one, and then pushing the others back, killing another. He cuts off both the brother's hands and then kills him too. A fourth assailant escapes to run and tell the Jarl, And the Jarl, who has connections to this family through one of the dead brothers, will not allow himself to be persuaded this time, not by Torfinn or anyone else. It all comes down to an armed confrontation between the Jarl and his men on the one side, and Grettir, Torfinn, and their supporters on the other. Only with the pleading of the bystanders and the willingness of Torfin and a few others to pay any costs required, only by the promise that Grettir will immediately leave Norway, is further bloodshed avoided. Once again, Grettir was being banished, this time being sent back to Iceland. Once again, on a merchant ship but this time with a much warmer send-off, with gifts and the promise of friendship from Torfin, and with a newly won reputation for being courageous and strong, if also a man around whom trouble and death tended to congregate. After this quick break, we'll go back to Iceland with him, and we'll get to the story of the haunting of Torhalstader, the risen dead, and the curse that came of it. When Grettir returned to Iceland, he was free to do so, the term of his exile having passed and he found more affection on his arrival than he had at his departure. When he returned, it was with new standing, renown, and confidence. But this wasn't all for the best. He'd lost his laziness, if that was really what it was, but not so much his belligerence, that tendency toward confrontation. Which drove him even to seek out and fight a boy who'd once beaten him at a ball game, then a boy, now an established and well thought of farmer. He looked for opportunities to test himself and his strength, and sometimes he found them. But for all his physical prowess, there was something about him that people did not always want around, not even on their own side. In one story here, the leader of a party soon heading off to battle asks one of his people who they have enlisted to help and is told that they've recruited someone whose support in war they value more than any other two men. And there's a pause. And then the leader says "Then this must be Grettir that he speaks of. His suspicion confirmed. The leader acknowledges that Grettir is probably unmatched in arms, but the problem is his luck. Something of a theme to this saga. I do not think it will last, he says, and you should not have unlucky men on your expeditions. He shall not go at all if I have my way. And he did have his way, for Grettir would not go along. He would only realize later that they had ventured off without him. He would try to instigate a fight when they returned, partly out of anger at being left behind, and a grieved sense that he had been insulted. Partly out of that pressing desire to test himself, he continued to search for opportunities to do so. And in the troubles at torhalstad Torhalstadter, in the Icelandic. He found one. Torhallor was a respectable farmer, and quite a wealthy one, particularly in livestock. But he had been going through a difficult time, and sought help from a man known to offer practical advice. There were hauntings on the farm, he told the man, an evil of some kind, and it had become impossible to hold on to shepherds. For under such circumstances, none could be found to tend his sheep for long. For this problem, the man had a recommendation. Someone who many found disagreeable, but who was unmatched in size and strength. And no, this was not actually our Gretir. This was someone named Glaumer who had arrived from Sweden the summer before. He would surely take up the role as shepherd, if anyone would. And so he did, agreeing to join Torhaler at his farm that winter. He was not afraid of ghosts, he said. It might even make the work less boring. There was truly something a bit different about this glaumer. He was heavily built and strange in appearance with eyes dark and wide open, wolf-gray in the color of his hair. No one knew anything of him, but he showed up when he said he would. He did the work well, marshalling the sheep with a voice that was loud and deep. And he went about unbothered by the hauntings that had driven off those before him. He was, in this sense, a model employee. But then there was his rudeness... He was awkward and uncivil, and he refused to go to church, caring neither for religion nor song. The people in general found him to be repulsive. It was Christmas when all this unpleasantness came to a head. Christmas Eve, to be specific. Glaumer rose that morning and called out to Torholler's wife for food. She, whose name is not given, informed him that this day, the day before the first day of Christmas, was a day of fasting, when none of them would eat. But had no time for these superstitions, complaining that people were no better off now than they had been in the pre-Christian past, when they had no such beliefs, and insisting that he at least be fed. She warned him against it, saying only evil would result. But eventually, she did as he asked. Glaumer would eat and then leave in a foul mood. The weather was dark, snowy, and stormy, increasingly so. People later recalled hearing Glaumer's voice at times, but less so throughout the day. By evening, There was a full blizzard, and by nightfall, the surly shepherd still had not returned. Not after church service, when there was talk of going out in search of him. Talk that was quickly quieted, given the conditions. And not by Christmas morning. Only then did they go out to look. Sheep were everywhere, scattered about by the weather some of them up into the mountains. In the high valley, the searchers found trampled snow and signs of violent struggle that had torn up earth and stone. Then, they found Glaumer, dead, blue, and enormously swollen. They also found large tracks leading away with great splashes of blood. The Shepherd had fought with the evil creature that had long haunted the farm, they concluded. And though only one body was to be seen, both must have died. At least some good had come of it. As for Glaumer's large body, they tried that day to bring it down from the valley, but they couldn't. Only getting him part way, for the remains were uncannily heavy. They tried again, on the second day of Christmas, using draft animals, but even then, they could not bring him all the way to the churchyard. On the third day, a priest came along with them, but this time, they could not even find the body, presumably because of the snow. On the fourth, the priest refused to again come with them. They gave up on bringing Glaumer down, and buried him there where he lay, beneath a pile of stones. It was not long before they knew that he did not rest peacefully, and that they had just exchanged the previous haunting for that of Glaumer. The dead shepherd was seen on the farm, sending men who saw him into faints or out of their wits. He was heard on the rooftops, riding the ridges at their peaks, and beating his heels on either side. He was feared, and even those with business there would not go up into the valley. That spring, Torhaler again found workers for his farm, and again he recruited an especially powerful man, one named Torgot, recently arrived by ship. And said to have the strength of two men. Like Glaumer before him, he confidently proclaimed that he would not be put off by some little phantom and would not allow it to affect his work. Like Glaumer, he took over the sheep when winter came. Torgot seemed ideally suited to the role once he'd started. He was a capable shepherd and got along well with everyone. Even Glaumer's visitations didn't bother him. He actually found them entertaining, and laughed off Torhaller's warnings to keep his distance. Then came Christmas Eve. That morning, Torhaller's wife worried aloud that the same thing would happen again. But Torgot reassured her that there was nothing to fear. It was a cold day, with driving snow, and by half-day, Torgat had not returned. He wasn't back in time for church, and Torhaler tried to muster a search party, but no one could be found who would risk the trolls in darkness. He wasn't back by Christmas morning, and after the people had eaten, they went out to look for him. They knew where to look. Straight to Glaumer's burial site they went, and there their shepherd was, neck broken, bones all smashed, and very much dead. Not wanting to fully repeat the Glaumer story, they hurriedly took him to the churchyard to be buried. No one felt safe at Torhalstadter then, and you could understand why. Glaumer became ever more aggressive after Torgot's death. And soon, none would stay there with Torhaler and his family, save for one last herdsman, who had been there for many years. Then, one morning, when Torhaler's wife went out to the cowshed, she heard a loud crack and a bellowing from the cows. They were attacking one another in a fury, And among them was the old herdsman's body, legs in one stall, head in the next, back broken over a raised stone edge. Finally, Torhaler and his family fled, leaving behind them all their animals to be killed by Glaumer. The rest of the winter they spent with friends, neither they nor any other going to Torhalstadter, no one taking horse or dog, safely up into the valley. But in spring, astonishingly, Torhaller and his family went back. Glaumer was less active when the sun was high, the days long and light. But the early winter came, and with it, more Glaumer. This time, it was Torhaller's daughter that was killed, and the farmer again abandoned his home. This, men you may have been wondering when we'd get back to him, was when Grettir re-entered the narrative. We find him doing well, really. Visiting people. Befriending that boyhood ballgame rival who he'd fought on his return to Iceland. He seems to be in a bit of a social period in his life. We find him visiting an acquaintance who relates to him the goings-on at Torhallstadter. Of course, Grettir is intrigued. Remember how much he wanted to test his strength, whether his adversary was human or not. That was really what seemed to fuel his belligerence as an adult. Now, as he spoke with his friend about the Draugr that haunted Torhallstadter, he saw such a chance. His friend argued against the idea, saying it was a threat to his good luck, another reference to his very finite fortune. He said that only evil came from evil such as Glaumer, but Grettir would not be dissuaded, and off to Torhallstadter he went. Torhaler greeted him warmly. He warned him that he should not stay there at the farm. He made no attempt to pretend that it was ever anything but deeply unsafe, and in this he had been pretty constant. But when he saw that Grettir really would be staying, he welcomed him in and saw his horse locked securely away. One night Grettir slept there, and there were no disturbances, no threat to Torhaler's visitor or his horse. And Torhaler was happy, saying that usually Glaumer would ride the houses every night, or else smash the doors. Another night he slept there, and again it passed in peace. But this time, when they went out to check, they found Grettir's horse dragged through the broken doorway. Torholler warned his guest one last time to leave or else he would certainly die. You already know that Grettier wouldn't leave. On the third night, Grettir slept fully clothed on the floor. He had a cloak wrapped over him and tucked beneath his head and feet, with a gap at his eyes to see. He had his feet pointing towards the entry and set against a bed frame. He lay there, looking at that entry, the frame had been ripped away, a door crudely installed, and a partition that had been in front of it broken. Beds and bedding had been torn and tossed about, and a burning light lit the scene. Late in the night, Grettir heard Glaumer's coming. He heard him banging against the wall and then climbing it. He heard him riding the rooftop, thumping his heels against the wood so that the timber creaked. Heard him up there for a long while before clambering down. He saw him come through the door, bending to enter and then stretching up, his hands to the roof beam. Glaumer seemed to him impossibly large and large-headed. But still, Grettir lay there, not moving, not giving himself away. He lay there as Glaumer approached, the Draugr wondering what this bundle on the floor was. He lay there, embraced his feet, as Glaumer grabbed a handful of his cloak and pulled. Once, and then again harder. At the third pull, even harder this time, Grettir was yanked to his feet, and Glaumer, left staring at the fragment of cloak in his hand. Immediately, Grettir tried to take advantage of Glaumer's surprise. He lunged in, wrapping his arms round the dead man's middle, looking to put him to the ground. But Glaumer was too strong for that, pushing back against Grettir's arms and holding himself up. Back toward the doorway, Glaumer went. Grettier gripping on, trying to find purchase with his feet, and to keep the fight inside, within the lamplight, while Glaumer pulled and pulled, dragging him always out toward the dark. Grettier had finally found a contest of strength he couldn't win. Not by strength alone. Now, as he realized he could not pull more mightily than Glaumer, that he was being drawn ever closer to the opening. Grettir changed his approach. With Glaumer straining to pull him along, Grettir suddenly kicked off of the threshold stone and threw himself forward into the Draugr. Together, they crashed through the doorway, Glaumer smashing through the beam over the door and bringing the roof down behind them. Together, they tumbled down to the ground, Grettir landing on top. Outside, the moon was flickering between the clouds, and just then, its light shot through clearly, fully illuminating Glaumer's staring face. It was, Grettir would say, the only thing that had ever scared him. Exhausted from the struggle, and transfixed by Glaumer's eyes, his strength abandoned him entirely, and he lay between life and death. He could only listen helplessly, as Glaumer, who had more evil power within him than any other Drauger, began to speak. You have been very determined to meet me, Grettir," he said, but it will hardly surprise you if you do not get much luck from me. I will tell you this. You have acquired by now only half of the strength and vigor which you were destined to get if you had not met me. I cannot take away from you what you already have, but I can see to it that you will never be stronger than you are now. And yet, you are strong enough as many will find to their cost. Up until now, your deeds have brought you fame But from now on, outlawry and slaughter will come your way, and most of your acts will bring you ill luck and misfortune. You will be made an outlaw and forced to live by yourself. I also lay this curse on you. You will always see before you these eyes of mine, and they will make your solitude unbearable. And this shall drag you to your death. When Glaumer finally finished speaking his curse, Grettir was at last able to regain his strength, to rise, draw his sword, and cut off Glaumer's head. He and Torhaler burned the Draugr's body. They gathered up the cold ashes in a skin bag and buried them at a place far away from all paths of men and pasture of animals. In the aftermath of his deed, the people of the neighboring farms hailed Grettir for his strength and courage. For truly, there was no one in Iceland who could best him. He'd found what he'd wanted, a true match for his powers and abilities. He'd been tested. And he had passed the test. But he had paid a high price in doing so. Just how high? We are going to see next episode, as we follow the saga of Grettir on to its next chapters. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you then. Circus will return.